Hi, I'm Jarrett Murphy from City Limits. And this is Ben Max from Gotham Gazette, and we're pleased to have on the podcast today Nicole Gelinas, the senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute, who focuses on New York economics and infrastructure there, and also a columnist at the New York Post. You should find her columns and, and read them all. Um, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Ben. Thanks, Jared. I'm happy to be here. Um, so we're going to talk mostly MTA. Uh, there's a lot happening with the with the MTA, management, budgeting, etc. cetera, uh, new transit chief who's got a lot of ideas and a big new plan, and obviously lots of budget considerations and then people's everyday lives <laughs> that are affected by it. So um, just sort of broadly speaking, you know, where are things at right now? How are you evaluating what's happening with the MTA? Well, I think it's been a year since Governor Cuomo started to put his new management in place at the MTA. He appointed Joe Loda to be chairman a year ago this week. And since then, he, he put in some other top managers throughout last summer. And so now that we've had a year, more or less, of allowing these people to do their work, I think there's two things people are thinking about. Are the immediate problems, the delays and in, in disorder getting better? And longer term, have they finally put in place a plan on what to build, how to build it more quickly so that we have better, faster service? So I guess let's hit on those two things. Uh, <laughs> where are they at in terms of... Um, seeing some progress or not on the day-to-day running of the subways? Well, with the delays, there's really no discernible trend in either direction. The good news is that things seem to have stopped getting worse. The bad news is they're not getting demonstrably better yet for the riders. And last month, for example, 66% of trains were on time. That was better than the 61% of the previous month. But on the other hand, they had 85 major incidents, which was worse than the the month the previous year when they had 75 major mm-hmm. incidents. So if you're, you know, with the governor has made statements saying people will soon see that things are getting better, but so far the riders can't be blamed if they're still seeing more or less the same level of delays they were seeing last year. Now, February, March, yes, we had some bad weather and so forth, and we really need a few more months before we can say, yes, things are getting better, no, they're not, or they're still just going up and down either way. But for now, no, it's not time to declare victory yet. It's interesting. I, part of the um, governor's plan, Loda's plan, and certainly part of how Andy Byford has talked about the system is short of making the actual improvements to performance, sort of some... I guess you'd call it kind of housekeeping or cosmetic improvements, like, for instance, explaining why delays are happening, things that might improve the passenger experience, even if they're still stuck on the train. Is there any sense of whether those are actually occurring? Is there any, like, tracking of whether those steps are taking root? Well, they really don't measure it in their monthly reports, and I think it is interesting how can they do that better and are they doing it better, but I can't say I know the answer to that. I mean, one of the one of the issues a lot of times is that by the time they know what's causing an incident and can report that to people, the incident may be over or it's in the process of being fixed and things like if you're standing on a platform and there hasn't been a train for 10 minutes, 
they never, I mean, that's a huge frustration that they don't say, yes, you should wait five more minutes or no, you should just declare your losses and go upstairs and walk or get a cab and, you know, things like a signal that has to be fixed, a sick passenger, all of that stuff. I mean, it's, it's almost just as much an issue of assessing and predicting how long it will take as it is in communicating it. And I don't think they're very good at it yet. There's a story that came out, I guess, last month. Uh, Village Voice did it, and the Times picked up about this decision a few years ago to to slow down the trains. Um, and, and attributing maybe a good deal of the recent delays, not so much to overcrowding or rising ridership, which is what we've heard is one of the estimations, but to a conscious decision to space the trains out and make them go slower because of some concern about safety. Has that story kind of died? Has MTA responded to that? I mean, that seems to be a way that they could speed up the trains quickly, if that were true. I'm not sure that I think that's where the problem and the answer lies. I mean, these were serious crashes that they had, you know, 20, 30 years ago, and uh, a crash on the Williamsburg Bridge, another Mm -hmm. crash where a person was killed. And so they're stuck with this signal system, I don't know that I would want to pressure them to try to speed things up and go back to that where we have to have another incident like that and they'll say, well, we better slow them down again. I mm-hmm. mean, if you if you push them too hard with the infrastructure that they have now, you are endangering the employees and endangering the passengers. So the, the, the general gist is still upgrading things so that there's new technology, but also so that the old stuff doesn't break down as much. That's the real essence here, right? And there's also the tinkering around the edges around how quickly they can get to sick passengers and what the protocols are around that. But, like, we're really talking about modernization work that just hasn't been done. Yeah, and I think a much bigger immediate solution would be better bus service above ground Mm. to take some of the pressure off the subway system well, we figure out exactly how to fix it. I mean, if we were to replicate some of the crowd, the busiest train routes, you know, the four, five, six, above ground and have dedicated bus lanes where you have a bus that comes every 30 seconds, that alleviates some of the crush underground and they can use some of that extra space to deal with these problems. I mean, if you've got a major incident and people know they can just go upstairs and almost have the same commute above ground, that would fix a lot of the problem. And that would take more, well, obviously the MTA would have to express interest in it, but it would take cooperation from the city and the mayor. And tremendous amount of political will, right? I mean, even to the extent that they have tried to do SBS or other things on major corridors, the pushback has been intense. Yep. And that's an interesting, actually, fall of this, is that it didn't make much splash, but a few months ago when the Regional Plan Association released their fourth regional plan, one thing they talked about was to fix the system, essentially shutting the whole subway system down overnight um, with the idea that then they could do the repairs much more comprehensively, maybe more cheaply and, and more quickly. And that would obviously be a decision that would require tremendous political will and that that might be an area where more than capital dollars um, is is where supply is where supply is lacking. Yeah, and shutting a line down overnight, what does that mean? Is that eleven to seven or is that two to five? Mm. Because there's a huge difference in ridership. I mean, the the very low ridership numbers that they put out, where they said only eighty five thousand people take the train during these hours. That doesn't include the 11 to 1230 part and then 
the five to seven part. I mean, if you're going to include those, then you have a much right, bigger right, right. issue of people going to work, coming home from work. And so that's another thing where it could be an idea, but what exactly is the idea first? Is it worth it to, if you're just getting three hours? Is that enough? I mean, maybe it is. Interesting. Yeah. The, to go to zoom back to, to Loda and the new management and the year we've had, Within that, there was this subway action plan, right? That obviously wasn't ready right when Loda took over. You know, that, that took some time to roll out. And then you had this tangle over funding for it, and the city wouldn't um, put up the half that, that Loda and Governor Cuomo were asking for. And then the state finally forced the city's hands. But then the MTA said, well, we've lost all this time, you know, the city dragging its feet on the money. What's your assessment of, I mean, it seems like, from what you said about the delays and the major incidents, even what was done in the subway action plan hasn't had a discernible impact, but is that in part because of that funding issue? No, I think the MTA is being disingenuous when it says it couldn't do this work because the city had dragged its feet with a quarter of a, a million. Hundred million yeah. yeah, I mean, the, the plan is a little over half a billion dollars. The, the MTA wanted half of that from the city, never got it, eventually kind of forced the city to provide this, this money in, in, the, uh, in, in the state budget. And, but the MTA doesn't have a funding crunch right now. I mean, they, they will at some point because they don't control their operating costs and they don't control their capital costs. But for the moment, to say that they had to delay repairing signals and tracks and so forth because of money, they haven't drawn down very much of the existing capital plan for the part of that that is capital work. I mean, the state committed $8.6 billion in capital funding to the MTA. They've only taken $65 million out of that. So they're not suffering from a lack of money. And frankly, with pretty much everyone who knows how to do this work is maxed out on overtime. They're working all night. There's only so many lines that they can shut down during the overnight hours. I mean, it's it's not a financial issue. It's more of a planning and logistical issue. And part of that, too, Loda has alluded to this, I think, in, in some city council hearings, is that the pool of contractors who can do the work outside of the MTA is also not limitless. And there's only a certain there is some limit to the capacity of work that they can take on too, right? Yeah, I mean, that's a that's an issue that they, they've talked about at board meetings. And you remember uh, back when the, there were three separate tunneling projects going on, the water tunnel that the city is sponsoring, the number seven train extension, and then the Long Island Railroad extension. There weren't enough tunnel contractors to do this work, and trying to do three things without enough people who can do those three things, it just made these projects more expensive and it made them take longer. So my, you know, again, being very much a generalist, my, you know, my sort of broad impression is that we kind of got to this point where there just wasn't enough work done over time. And we're at a point where, and what you just said, you know, clues into this, where even if they really get things going, it's going to take a lot of time to, to see real results. I mean, is that, what, what kind of time frame? I mean, and we haven't gotten to this yet, but Andy Byford, the new, you know, transit president has, has put forward this fast forward plan, which shrinks some of the timelines that people had been estimating. But 
we're talking about years and I mean, how many years are we talking, I guess? Yeah, well, uh, Andy Byford, as you said, he announced this plan last month, I guess, right around Memorial Day, called Fast Forward, that has several elements, making more stations accessible to the elderly and disabled, rehabbing the stations more quickly, but the major thing is to modernize the signals and go to a digital signal system so that we don't have to space these trains as far apart as we do today. Now, his plan is to do five lines in five years and then eight lines within substantially the whole system within 10 years. But for now, and, and for some background, we've only ever done two. It, we did the L line and we've been doing the number seven line seven. For, for 10 years now. And so to try to do essentially the whole system in a decade is a big undertaking. And he says he can do this. I, and frankly, no one else I've spoken to has any insight into how he's going to do it. It's just a matter of faith for the moment. But the signs that we have now and what they can do now, which is all we have, are not very promising. I mean, much simpler signaling projects on the LIRR. Another very, very small delay was announced today on the LIRR mainline signaling project. Uh, much smaller capital projects, I mean, things like installing ventilation plans. Bo at the board meetings this week, they, they say these projects are seven, eight months d delayed, and they don't have very good reasons for it. They'll say things like, a project was delayed because more work needed to be done. Well, that's not a, a reason. Right. I give that excuse all the time. Yeah. yeah. And so, not quite done because I have more yeah. to do. If they're yeah. still not adequately explaining these delays, it's maybe they really do have a plan and we'll see the results of that plan soon, but we can't say that we see them now. The delays that we see, I, I wonder sometimes how much of that is uh, a reflection of over-aggressive promising on the front end, you know, suggesting a limited timeline for a project, maybe so it can qualify under some particular budget year for capital funding, maybe so it looks better in their internal rating of different projects, and then it turns out, oh, whoops, it took seven months longer than we thought. Is, is, that, is that part of the picture, do you think? Is there some kind of gaming on the front end that leads to these sort of artificial delays on the back end? Yeah, I think that's true. If you, if you look at a project like Eastside Access, Back when it was announced in the late 1990s, when the MTA said it would be done by 2009, they were under pressure to say, we'll get this done at least where people can kind of visualize the date. I mean, if you were thinking about things in 1998, the year 2023 seems really far away, but that's when it's actually going to be done. And I think that happens on smaller projects, too. I mean, there's just... Uh, pressure to say that you're going to deliver. I mean, that. It's, so it's hard not to look at the Byford plan and say, is the same thing going on here? So help us, help me <laughs> and help any anybody else who needs it uh, understand a little bit about how all these things sort of layer together. So you have Loda as the chair and you have other management. I mean, those are just sort of people and they need to they need to institute some reforms and move plans forward, but that's sort of the management issue. You have an ongoing capital plan, and the MTA does um, five-year capital plans. So you have an ongoing one, but there's also a new one that is going to be due in another 
six months or so. You also have the fast forward plan that Byford just put out, but he doesn't have money attached to that. That's his modernization plan that you just gave the broad strokes of. So how does the current capital plan, which is where they have all these billions of dollars to do upgrades and repairs, much of which hasn't been drawn down yet, as you said. So there's that nearing an end, the Byford plan, and then an expected new five-year capital plan for tens and tens of billions of dollars. How do we understand the interplay? Well, I'm not really sure. I mean, <laughs> we have uh, at, at the board meetings this week, for example, they give a regular update on the existing capital plan. So out of $33.3 billion in plan spending, which does change once in a while based on amendments, like they did an amendment last month. They've only drawn down $3.9 billion. So it's kind of strange to think we've only got a year left on this capital plan, but yet most of the money is not actually spent. And when we think about this signaling plan that Byford announced, he didn't put a price tag on it. Most people think it will cost well above $10 billion, and how much above, who knows. So we have $3 billion, a little bit less than $3 billion, for signals in the current capital plan. So will some of that be repurposed for the Byford plan, or do we need an extra unknown billions of, of dollars? We really don't know that yet. And plus, because these projects go over budget, go over their allotted capital plan. I mean, we're sp still spending money from capital plans eight years ago. So mm -hmm. it's it's a good exercise to plan out this five-year capital plan and say, this is what we want to do in five years. But in practice, it's more of a, a theoretical exercise than a practical one. And it sounds like it has to be at least a little more realistic for it to matter. Yes. And there's a lot of political interference in the capital plan too. I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. It, it is taxpayers who provide the money for this. It, it should be the governor, the mayor, the representatives from the other counties who decide what strategically we want to spend our money on, and it's really just up to the MTA to carry it out. But something like, for example, all of the projects that we're doing for the commuter railroads, like East Side Access, $11 billion, the uh, building a new track for the main line of the Long Island Railroad, uh, uh, the Penn Station access to build Metro North stations in the Bronx. Uh, these are probably not the biggest priorities that the whole system faces, but these things for commuter railroads take up more than half of the expansion capital plans, whereas expanding subways, modernizing the, the signals, the things where 93% of the MTA's riders are, that's not getting the same percentage of money that it should get. But the governor likes to make Long Island announcements, and so we get, <laughs> right. we get some... <laughs> it's interesting that you know your point about wanting the plans to be somewhat responsive to political leadership makes sense. What people worry about on the other end is that you know, Byford has laid out a plan that, as you said, pledges to do five lines in five years and has a timeline after that. What's your impression on how important would it be, let's say that plan gets the money it needs to, for it to actually come to fruition, how important is it that Joe Loda and Andy Byford stay in place to oversee that? Or does the MTA have a history of, once something is set in motion, 
succeeding leaders can take it over and, and see it through. How much of this is personally directed? Yeah, I think that's part of the problem is that we've had a decade where we've had I don't know how many different MTA chair people. I mean, this is Lotus' second stint, but we've had, uh, you know, from the Pataki era to the Cuomo era, everyone wants their own person. Often that person doesn't even last through the whole term. So that's part of the problem is accountability. I mean, will, like, if, if the Byford plan works, will we be? Will he be around in five years mm -hmm. to take the credit for it, <laughs> it having worked? I mean, looking at the optimistic scenario, but so far, we've never had one chairperson or one New York City transit head to be there and shepherd one of these projects through for its whole life cycle. And that's actually at the at the board meeting this week. That's one of the things that. Reckler and a couple other people recommended is having a CEO of each project. Uh, again, it, that sounds like a good idea, but they tried that before. I mean, that's kind of what the MTA Capital Construction Division was supposed to be, having a CEO for the major expansion projects, and that hasn't worked out very well. And that's a fairly new person as well, Jano Lieber. Yeah, and it's a fairly new, uh, well, I guess not that new anymore, but, you know, around the turn of the century, the first time they had had expansion projects since really the 1930s was mm. when they created this. So, you know, 10, 15 years of it hasn't uh, worked out all that well. Mm. And it does seem like leadership is a little um, dispersed. You know, you have Loda, who obviously, if folks have been following the news, has several different commitments uh, and doesn't seem to sleep much. Um, and then you've got Foy and, and Lieber and Byford, and it's a little hard sometimes to tell who's in charge. Yes, if, if you were going to pick out one person who to give praise or blame to out of this sort of four or five people, it would be very hard to figure out who that person is. Now, Loda is, I mean, when he was nominated, he made no secret that he didn't really want to take this job. And so he's really there at the behest of the governor. Right. And so that's a decision that the governor made. And you do wonder, are there not enough qualified people that the governor trusts where he couldn't find a person? And that's not to say that Loda is not well qualified and everything else, but is there not someone who could do this as a full-time job and be the accountable person hmm. and just uh, one more you know sort of factor in this in this discussion certainly is going back to construction costs contracting costs we we were we knew we were talking to you so jared and i you know kept ourselves from watching every minute of the <laughs> mta board meetings this week but um i watched a little bit of the of the main board meeting and i saw scott reckler talking about um, contracting reform and the need for better efficiency and the need to change. And this is something I've heard Jano Lieber talk about as well, is just changing some of the structures of the contract to put more risk on the contractee. Um, incentives, performance-based payment, you deliver ahead of time, you might earn some more money. You're late, you don't get the full deal. Um, where does that factor in all? Is that really more for the bigger projects? 
No, I think that could be for the smaller projects, including some of the signal modernization projects. However, though they decide to award those things is having, first of all, they need more bidders, and they, they talked about that, and, and you mentioned as well, Jared, that it, uh, they talked about this at the meeting. There's a sort of monopoly problem where a lot of these these projects, including the signaling project that they have to award for east side access, they only get one bidder. And when they've built custom systems, the, the company that built the custom system is the only one qualified to come back and get contracts to maintain and repair that custom system. So that's, it's not only uh, we're stuck with this one contractor for five years, but you're kind of stuck with them for, you for know, life. 30 years. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So that's, and plus Alstom and Siemens, which are the two Western signal companies are merging. So you're, you're going to have one fewer company to build on bid on signal projects. So that's a problem is just if you if you try to push the financial risk to the contractors, there's only so many companies in the world that can shoulder a billion dollars worth of risk. And so that's an issue. And on the other hand, if the contractor has taken the risk of saying, we're going to modernize the 456 lines in 18 months. And if we don't, we don't make any profit. But, but what happens when the MTA says you can use these tracks starting at midnight, but then something happens and they can't, they need to keep the trains running. Then who, <laughs> it, if it gets too complex, it just ends up in litigation. I mean, London has had those, those types of problems. So there's no, there's lots of things they, sh they should be thinking about, but there's no simple answer. It really comes down to having competent management. One thing I thought interesting coming out of today's uh, hearing that one of our reporters talked about is um, the change to the routes of the buses in Staten Island, which is part of this bus plan that was released earlier this year, kind of a parallel product to the subway action plan. And it's a pretty ambitious, it's focused just on Staten Island for now, rerouting of buses, eliminating a lot of stops, trying to make the system more efficient. Um, and it's it's interesting that, and this is a good question to segue as we want to from MTA to, to other street congestion issues, but it's interesting that there, and this goes to maybe one of your earlier points, there's so much, seems to be so much more flexibility on on the bus system. Um, that a plan, I think, is supposed to be implemented sometime in August. That's, that's pretty yep. fast. Yeah, and I, I think that's a, a good idea. I mean, if people are driving in to Manhattan from Staten Island, you really can't blame them. I mean, there's no... There's no good way to get here on transit, especially at off hours. So having something like that alleviate some of the congestion in the city is a, is a good start. And it's much cheaper and faster than trying to figure out all the subway stuff. And that, But that seems, again, to go back to one of Jared's earlier questions, this is where the city needs to even be more of a partner, right, is yep. on the buses. And the mayor... Hasn't seen that interested. I mean, he was happy to announce the SBS expansion, but that had a really long timeline, and you know, he doesn't really seem that engaged on buses. There's also NYPD enforcement that n is needed that basically everybody acknowledges doesn't happen, and the MTA sort of even seems to be talking about how do we how do we possibly get these bus lanes enforced? Yeah, I think the enforcement issue is a big problem. I mean, the the mayor announced his. Clear Lanes enforcement projects in October. I don't think there's been any real 
results on that. I mean, the city came out with its report last week that traffic in Midtown is slower than it's been, at least since they started thinking about this, at least a decade, but most likely longer than that. I mean, it's less than eight, million, eight miles an hour in, in the core parts of the city. And so double parked cars, illegally parked city workers' cars that don't get ticketed, um, Ubers and, and bike lane. Right? Yep, that was construction. One the, you, you did yeah. some great work on this that I wanted to make sure we, we talked about. I mean, thank you. Yeah, uh, no problem. Uh, as Jared said, sort of thinking about street congestion a little bit separately from the subways, although they're obviously are related factors. What did you find? Yeah, in, in the core parts of Midtown, which are from the mid 30s to up to up to the lower part of Central Park, where de Blasio is doing this enforcement project, I mean, 13% of the lanes are taken over for construction projects. So if you're building like the SL Green Tower on 42nd Street, that itself has two or three lanes taken out of commission so they can do all their construction vehicle staging. And it's not an hour, it's it's like three years, more than <laughs> really more like five years. And that's true of the MoMA Tower. You know, you pick any spot in Midtown, really, it's hard to find a street or an avenue where there's not one lane just permanently blo blocked off by these orange barriers. And mm -hmm. so that's an issue. Things like shredding trucks, like Charles Komanoff took a picture, sh shredding truck, double parked, the shredding part of the truck is taking up another lane. And why are we shredding documents in the middle of the street? I mean, these are just absurd. Yeah, actually, actually shredding yeah. trucks like that. Not, yeah. not, it's not some construction yeah. term. Yeah. And it's not like there's just one and where we just found a, it's like a pony walking through Midtown. I mean, these two are, you know, right. every other block, there's a shredding truck. Well, and yeah. even if it were just a few big construction projects, shutting down lanes that then has an effect on everything around it and behind yep. it and you're not talking about just a few um yeah and I, i've noticed certainly <coughs> even my neighborhood in the, the sort of north central bronx just the number of cars on the road seems to have exploded and i don't know if that is a result of four higher vehicles or rising population um but it is significantly harder uh, you know much of the focus about traffic in new york for good reason is on the central business district and on the arterial highways but even on like secondary and tertiary streets in the outer boroughs, it's increasingly hard to get anywhere. Um, and I don't know if anybody's really talking about that in a comprehensive way. I don't know if you've heard anybody address that. Not really. I think all of these things go together. I mean, if the subways are less reliable, Uber and Lyft exist, it's much cheaper and easier to summon a car than it was 10 years ago. So why not just avoid the trains and take a car? And then you've put more cars on the streets coupled with all of this construction and congestion. So it's kind of no aspect of it is being well controlled. <laughs> I think I have heard the mayor to his credit, even though he seems to be disinterested in a lot of this stuff and announcing some things that then don't get followed up on, et cetera, et cetera, all those issues, to his credit, I think I've heard him say, congestion is not a midtown Manhattan or even a, you know, below 60th Street issue. It's all over Brooklyn and it's, you know, it's everywhere. And you're now attesting it's also uh, in the Bronx. It is true. Um, yep. Downtown Brooklyn, Central it, Harlem. It, it, yeah, it's, I mean... 
where I live in, in outer Brooklyn, I mean, there's some of the major streets are just bumper to bumper, you know, during busy times and the buses can't get anywhere. And, you know, it's, it's wild. Um, all right. So we're in our last couple of minutes here with uh, Nicole Gelinas, uh, senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute. If you have other questions, fire away. The, the only thing I was going to suggest is just, you know, I feel like even this discussion and so many discussions around the MTA and transit and congestion are very like negative and very, you know, we sort of throw our hands up. There's so many problems. Nobody's doing things right. You know, so just sort of wondering if, you know, in conclusion, but if you want to throw anything else out there, Jared, please, um, you know, we could talk about not necessarily things going right, but just what are four or five things that sort of should happen or need to happen in the near to medium term, whether it's MTA or buses or whatever, you know, you're, you're good, I think, at both assessing problems, but also suggesting uh, where things need to go. So that's sort of something I was interested in us wrapping up with. Yeah, and actually, that my, my final question was going to tie into that very much, which is that we've, this is a political podcast. We're in the middle of a political season. Ah. And uh, to that line, you know, when you hear candidates for statewide office or legislative offices talk about transit over the next few months, what kind of things are you hoping to hear them say if the discussion is going to be an intelligent one? I think the governor and the mayor at some point will really have to work together on it. And I mean, I'm not a psychologist, but I don't see why it it hurts them to work together. I would think people aren't thinking, well, if de Blasio is taking the lead here, this makes me like Cuomo less or the other way around. I think if people saw the two of them taking responsibility together, that would be good for both of them. I mean, the reality is the city has record surpluses. The Who knows when or if we could go into recession and those surpluses go away. And so both the state and the city will have to put more long-term money into rebuilding the system. And they both have a stake in what projects do we spend the money on. If we resignal this line first, do we try to replicate it with bus service above ground? I mean, these are things that they can't just be going back and fighting on. So I think that's the most important thing. And the second thing, longer term, because the MTA doesn't really need money right now, is a better revenue source for the MTA. I mean, we'll have to do the congestion pricing at some point. And so... What does that look like? How do we do it? What do we spend the money on? I think those are the two most important things. And mm-hmm. then what they can do now is just, you know, as we said, better bus service. Mm-hmm. And in yeah. your estimation is, is another thing on that list, r- get Byford what he needs for this plan and get out of his way? Yeah, um, that will be complicated <laughs> right? and political. But yes, I think it would be good to get started on one of these new signaling contracts, which I'm sure they're, they they know that. I mean, they're doing it behind the scenes. And another thing, too, is the L train shutdown. Nice. Mm-hmm. That's April, I guess, so it's less than a year away. Doing that right could be a model for some of these other shutdowns. I mean, if we're going to... First of all, it's actually hard to start these other signaling projects while the L train is shut down. I mean, you, you can't probably do more than one at a time. But if this works well, then you could do that with buses, bikes, carpooling to replicate whichever line you do next. Well, Nicole Gelinas, Senior Fellow at the Manhattan Institute, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you, Thank Jared. You. Thank you, Ben.